look like. Uh, all right, if you have a Bible with you, uh, would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 2? And if you're using one of our red uh, pew Bibles, Galatians chapter 2 is on page 566. Well, like I said, we are working our way through this vision series. We're calling it One Step at a Time. And along with our sermons, we're going through this workbook and devotional together. Um, I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. I know that it has been an encouragement to me as I've um, paused and reflected on what does it mean to take a step towards Jesus? What does it mean to take a step into the life of the church? And what does it mean to take a step towards our neighbors, um, in particular one non-Christian neighbor in my life. We've got two more weeks in our sermon series this week and next week. Um, you know, I would encourage you if, if maybe you've fallen behind, um, that's okay. You know, there's, there's not a quiz, there's not a test, you don't have to turn this in at the end of this. It's okay. Pick up where you left off, take a, an hour this week, try to catch up. I, I really do think that as we do this together, that we will reap the, the rewards of doing it. So, um, yeah, to remind you, our, our vision for the year is this. In, in 2023, we want to mature as disciples of Jesus and make new disciples of Jesus so that every man, woman, and child that calls Story Church home will flourish as we courageously follow Jesus together. And we've been working at uh, little parts of that along the way. And, and today, we're talking about what does it mean to live a life that flourishes? What does it mean to um, produce fruit in the Christian life? What does it mean to flourish? I love how Psalm 1 that we read earlier describes a flourishing life. A flourishing life is like a, a life that it's like a tree planted by streams of water that the roots dig deep and drink from that water, and so it yields fruit in its due season. And the leaves of that tree do not wither away. In fact, everything that that man or woman does prospers. That's our desire, right? That's our desire, that our marriages would flourish. Our, our desire is that our families would flourish, that our children would flourish. Our desire is that our relationship with neighbors would flourish. Our understanding of ourselves, our, our own health, our habits would flourish. That our relationship with money would flourish. Not that we would have more money, but that we would live faithfully with regard to that. We want to flourish, right? So this week, as you reflect in the, the book this week, um, you know, one big takeaway is this. Your relationship with Jesus doesn't occupy just a part of your life, like your spiritual side. Your relationship with Jesus is intended to affect all of your life. Rather than siloing Jesus into a compartment of your world, Jesus and your relationship with him, it ought to enhance each and every part of your life. And because that's true, as we take these steps of discipleship together, we believe that every one of us in every part of our lives will flourish. That's the kind of life that's been transformed by the gospel. And we're going to look at that today. 
what is a gospel-transformed life? What is a flourishing life? And not in the particulars, but in the generalities. What are the principles behind a flourishing life? And um, we're going to see in this passage from the Apostle Paul uh, these principles that undergird the flourishing, gospel-transformed life. And, and that's this. If you want to take notes and follow along in the bulletin, um, three things. The flourishing life begins with the gospel. It is sustained by the gospel, and it is conformed to the gospel. The flourishing life begins with the gospel. It is sustained by the gospel, and it is conformed to the gospel. Let's read this passage, uh, pray, and then we'll get into it. Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, I want to give some context real quick. Paul is writing this letter uh, to the churches in the region of Galatia, and in the main purpose of this letter is to defend the truth of the gospel and his authority as an apostle to preach it. Um, and he's giving this anecdote, this story of what happened when Peter, and we'll read his name is Cephas in this letter, but it's Peter, when Peter, another apostle, uh, was out of step with the truth of the gospel, and, and Paul corrected him and then defends the truth of the gospel. So that's the context of this passage. Starting at verse 11 and working our way down to the end of the chapter. But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, um, that's groups of Christians coming up from Jerusalem, he had been eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing the circumcision party, or fearing this, this group of Christians that came up from Jerusalem. And the rest of the Jews in Antioch acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, 
then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word, you have given us your truth. We so quickly and easily forget it. May the words upon my lips in this message, may they remind us all of that truth, of your love, of your grace, and of your mercy. Spirit, work on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, Sarah, could I have my water? My throat's a little dry. All right. A flourishing life begins with the gospel. Let me ask you a question. What does a flourishing, successful, achieving life look like to you? In the last... uh, Six, seven years or so, I uh, have graduated with a master's degree. I'm now raising three wonderful children. I have started a church. I have bought a house. We just bought a new car. I've established new relationships in each of the cities that I've moved to. I've rooted myself in the community and care for my neighbors. If you would have asked me when I was 18 or 19 or 20, what does a flourishing life look like? All those things would have been on there. You know, it was an unspoken and yet still present standard or definition that I grew up with. I grew up in a middle, upper-class, suburban community with wonderful parents and a wonderful community. That was the standard of a flourishing life that I received. And I've, I've lived it. It's been great. What about you? What is the flourishing life for you that you've been led to believe is true? In Antioch, there were these certain people, this group of people that came up from Jerusalem. These people came from James. They were Jewish, possibly even a group of Pharisees who had now become believers in Jesus. And they were believing and teaching that the flourishing life not only requires that you believe in Jesus, but that you also now live your life in adherence to the law. That if you want to live a successful, uh, acceptable life of achievement, yes, believe in Jesus and add to that obedience to the law. And that was the definition of the flourishing life for them. That was a life worth living. That was a life that if you lived it, God would be proud of you. God would be pleased with you. That he'd look on your life and your achievements and your success and and say, well done. You've done what I've asked you to do. I think it's innate in all of us to want to live a life that is pleasing to those uh, 
that we respect, whether it's our parents or our community. Rob McElhenney, who is the creator and star of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which uh, as a pastor I don't recommend, but it's a funny show. Um, they're doing a rewatch podcast, him and his co-creators. And um, often in the podcast, they'll talk about living life in Hollywood and the friends that they know. And um, Rob made this astute observation. He said, everyone today working in Hollywood is there to one degree or another out of a sense of seeking their parents' approval. That they were wired from an early age to go into acting and performance out of a, a sense of wanting their parents' approval, their attention. Everyone has a father wound, he says. And to one degree or another, they think that if they make it big in Hollywood, if they land that perfect part, then finally their mom or their dad will look upon them with approval and delight. That's so true, isn't it? My own children love to make crafts or draw pictures or build Legos, and they run up to me and they say, Dad, look what I made. Isn't it great? What are they doing? They're looking for my delight in them. They're looking for my approval, my pride in them, and I do delight in them. I am so proud of who they are. But this is just a fundamental human reality. It is innate in all of us that we work for the delight of our parents, those in authority over us, our creator in heaven. You know, as I was preparing this workbook, and as I'm going through it, I have this constant fear that I am asking you guys to do things and that you will walk away with a sense of, well, if I do them, Jeremy will be pleased with me. And if I don't do them, Jeremy's going to be disappointed in me. An even greater fear is that I, I don't want you to walk away from this thinking, if I do these things, God will be happy with me. And if I don't do these things, God must not be happy with me. Like if, if this workbook is preventing you from understanding the gospel, if, if you walk away from this thinking that my relationship with Jesus is dependent on whether or not I do the things that this book is asking me to do for the church, rip it up. Because this is contrary to the gospel. If that's the way you're thinking about it, doing these things will not make you a Christian. And not doing those things won't make you a non-Christian. I, I, that's not the gospel. I don't want us to become like one of these men from James that insists that not only do you have to believe in Jesus, you also have to live your life according to some kind of plan or procedure or standard given to you by your parents or by your community or by your church or by your pastor. No, that's not the gospel. And if that's what you're thinking, rip this up. Paul says, we are not justified by the works of the law. 
We are not made acceptable by the spiritual disciplines or behaviors of God's word. No. We are approved and accepted and delighted in and looked fondly upon by our Heavenly Father, not by those things, not by living up to any other kind of standard, none of that, no workbook, no routine, no ritual, no discipline. Those things do not justify you. What does? Faith in Jesus. The flourishing life begins with the gospel. If there's anything else in your head that thinks, I have to do this in order to begin the life of a Christian, you are wrong. Believe in Jesus. Friends, that is the gospel. The good news that sinful men and women like us are brought into acceptance with God, not because of our works, but through a simple act of trusting in Jesus. So rest in him. Stop running the rat race. Stop trying in this never-ending pursuit of your heavenly Father's delight. You cannot do it on your own. Believe, receive the work of Jesus as your own. Friends, until then, we will never be enough. We will never work hard enough. We will always worry that we haven't done enough. We'll always be anxious whether we have done all the right things. We will always feel guilty when we set up for ourselves a standard of rules and expectations that we have to follow and that we fail again and again to live up to. But when we have trusted in Jesus, when we have been justified by faith alone, well then, the Father says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, the flourishing life does not begin with our works. It begins with the gospel. We have to get that. All right, you might respond to that simple truth like this. Sure, that's how the Christian life begins. That's how the flourishing life starts, by believing in Jesus. But that can't be all there is, right? That, that can't be it. Don't we then have to live our lives a certain way? Don't we have to stop sinning? Don't we have to follow the rules? Because to me, just believing in Jesus sounds too good to be true. That God loves you no matter what? Sounds like it doesn't matter then how I live my life once I believe in Jesus. Pastor Jeremy, is that what you're saying? Well, that was the objection that Paul's audience hurled against him. Let's look at his response. He says, no, that's not what I'm saying. He says the gospel is not just the beginning of the flourishing life. It's not just the entrance of the spiritual flourishing life. The gospel is what sustains the flourishing life. I love how Tim Keller puts it. The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life, the beginning of it. No, the gospel is the A to Z 
of the Christian life. It is everything. It encompasses our whole life. It is what sustains our flourishing life. So Paul goes on. He says that the gospel not only begins the flourishing life, it sustains the flourishing life. By faith, you and I not only receive the forgiveness of our sins, we not only receive justification from Jesus, but we are also united to Jesus. We're we're brought together with him in union, a metaphysical union, that we're enmeshed in his life. And because we're enmeshed in his life, because we're united to him, it sustains us throughout our life. And in this passage, there are three ways in which the gospel of Jesus enmeshed with him. There's three ways that this gospel of Jesus sustains the flourishing life. First, Jesus makes us free. Let's look at that. Jesus makes us free. He says in verse 19 that Christians, by virtue of our union with Christ, we have died to the law and now live for God. Because we are united to Christ and his crucifixion, because we're united to him through faith, we died with Christ on the cross. And that death, Paul says, was a death to the law, to these standards that these Jewish men were saying, you must live this way to live accepted. In other words, the law no longer has power and authority over us because we have died to it. It used to have power over us, but now it doesn't. Before, in our old way of thinking, we were bound to it, to live up to its standard. We were bound to it, to live up to the law, to keep it to perfection in order to be justified. And in that way of thinking, it was terrifying. It was an impossible task. It was crippling. We, we buckled under the weight of that burden. It fills us with anxiety and worry because we know we can never do such a thing perfectly. So Paul says, remember, you have been united to Jesus. You have died to that way of living. And now because you are under grace and not under the law, you are free to live for God. Jesus makes you free. We are free to live for him. I was watching the Oscars last week, and there was a commercial uh, by the car company Volvo. And um, in, in this commercial, it was many shots of people attempting to do um, a, a task, something that was maybe an, an intense or scary or nerve-wracking or, or, or even a crippling task. There was a skateboarder, a young kid trying to do a trick for the first time, or a performer about to walk on stage before thousands of fans, and she was nervous. There was a blind track runner uh, trying to run a sprint. There was a, 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 a parent dropping off their kid for the first day at school. There was a little boy and his dad out surfing in the water. There was a, a daunting task before them. And uh, as the commercial was wrapping up, 
Each of these people facing this impossible task connected with someone, whether it was their parents or their friends or a community, and they huddled around them and reassured them, you can do this, You're, we're with you. And then the tagline on the commercial said this, when you feel safe, you can truly be free to live. And then the person did the task. When you feel safe, you can truly be free to live. Friends, under the law, we did not feel safe. We were scared. We were nervous. We were anxious. We were crushed and condemned under the weight of the law. But now, that law, we have died to it. Because of Jesus, you have died to the law and can now live free in the safety and the security of God's love for you. We are set free to actually live for him. We're set free from the demands to live up to a standard in order to be justified. Do you see how the gospel sustains us? We're free to live for him. The gospel also says that not only does Jesus make us free, Jesus makes us new. He says in verse 20, that those who have been united to Jesus, not only have you been crucified with Christ, but now you live with Christ. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is a completely new life. Two different people, the former self and the new self. 2 Corinthians says, in Christ, the old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we're united to Jesus, not only to his death, but his resurrection, we are made new. We're different. We're different people. Have you been to a high school reunion anytime recently? I'm nervous about going to my high school reunions. I, uh, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I'm a different person now than I was back then. I, I was a real jerk in high school. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm different. And that's not, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm a, you know, don't hear what I'm not saying. But I don't think people would recognize me. They might see my name tag and be like, oh, I knew a Jeremy, but you don't, it's not you. John Stott says about this new self, he says, someone who is united to Christ is never the same person again. Instead, he is changed. It's not just his standing before God which has changed. It is he himself radically, permanently changed. To talk of his going back to the old life or even sinning as he pleases is frankly impossible. He has become a new creation and has begun a new life. And because, friends, this new life is animated by the Spirit of Christ who lives within us, well, He now gives us new desires, desires for holiness, desires for God, desires for His Word, desires for the heavenly things, for our eternal hope. Friends, it's not that we cannot sin again. We, we obviously do and we obviously will. But we do not want to. The whole tenor of our life has changed. Everything is different now because we are, in fact, new. 
I love how Psalm 1 puts it. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. This isn't instantaneous. It's gradual. It's progressive. Sometimes it's slow, but it is inevitable. We are made new. The Spirit of Christ is within us. He is making all things new, including us. Friends, do you see how the gospel sustains us? It's making us new. Finally, Jesus not only makes us free, not only makes us new, but Jesus makes us forgiven. What if we sin in the Christian life? What if we backslide? What if we take one step forward and two steps back? Friends, the gospel of Jesus sustains us even then when we sin because it reminds us that Jesus has made us forgiven. Verse 20 ends like this. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Friends, the gospel sustains us because it is the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has lived in our place and has died in our place. That means he has died when you should have died. And because he died for you instead, you will never die for your sins. You will never receive the wrath of God for what you have done. Not only the sins that you committed before becoming a Christian, but the sins that you're doing today and the sins that you will do tomorrow and forever after. Martin Luther in his commentary of Galatians says this, I must listen to the gospel. I must drill it into my head. I must beat myself with it. I must pay attention to the gospel, which teaches me not what I have to do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. He suffered and died to deliver me from my sin and from death. Past tense. He suffered. He died. Or as Paul puts it, he loved me. He gave himself for me. It's past tense. It's done. There's nothing left for us to do. My sin, your sin, has been atoned for. There's no act of penance left for us. There's no way that we can absolve ourselves of what we've done. And so when you're going through this workbook, do not think for a moment that you are a sinner and by doing these things, you will atone for your sin. Friends, the gospel of Jesus sustains us. It reminds us you are already forgiven. There's nothing left to do. Living for God now is not any kind of way to, to continue appeasing him. There's nothing that we can do to keep his wrath at bay because, friends, Jesus has already done it for us. The gospel of Jesus sustains us in our Christian life because we're united to him. We no longer are under the burden of the law, but we're set free to live for him. We're made new by the spirit of Christ that lives within us gives us new desires and changes us from the inside out. We're forgiven, a constant reminder that it is done. It is in the past. Our sin has been atoned for. 
We can live and serve him, even be obedient to him, not out of a sense of needing to absolve ourselves for our past sins, but in light of the truth that our sins, all of them, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. Friends, the gospel is not just the gateway into the flourishing life. It is the path upon which we walk the flourishing life. Finally, in conclusion, we've seen how the gospel is the beginning of the flourishing life. We've seen that it sustains the flourishing life. Finally, let me briefly remind you that the gospel conforms us, that the flourishing life is conformed to the gospel. We read the anecdote earlier when Peter was not in step with the gospel, Paul says, when I saw that their conduct was out of step with the truth of the gospel, that Peter was living his life in such a way that, that betrayed the truth of the gospel. The, the phrasing is that Peter is walking down a path that if he continues down that path, he will walk away from the gospel. Paul says, come back to the truth. He calls him out for it. You have to live a life conformed to the truth of the gospel. In Romans, uh, Paul says it like this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God for you so that you may know what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our lives ought to be conformed to the truth of the gospel, lived in such a way that is conformed to the will of God. I love how Colossians 3 puts it. In whatever you do in your life, in all of your words, in all of your deeds, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There is a way to live our lives in conformity to the truth of the gospel. This week, in your reflection, you're going to be asked to reflect on all the different parts of your life, your family relationships, your friendship relationships, your relationship to your work, your relationship to money, your relationship to your hobbies, your pastimes, your relationship to your body, your own self, your relationship to your mind or even your heart, all of those things. Are you flourishing in them? Are you conforming them to the truth of the gospel? Not so that you can receive God's favor. You can't do that. But because of God's favor in you, because you're made new, because you're set free, because you're already forgiven, live for him. I, I can't go into details of how that works out. It's wisdom. It's discernment. So my, the application is get together with someone in the church. Share your life with them. Ask them, hey, what do you think I should do with this question? Hey, what do you think I should do here in this situation at work? Hey, I'm really struggling financially. Can you help me out with this? Hey, my marriage is on the rocks. We, we haven't slept in the same bed for a few days because I'm on the couch. Help me here. I want to flourish. Find someone that will remind you again and again and again of the gospel. Friends, the gospel is the beginning of our life with Christ. It is what sustains our life with Christ and is what conforms us now 
to the life of Christ. My, my prayer is that as we do this together, as we take these steps together, every one of us will flourish because of the gospel. Let's pray.